Building a foundation for tomorrow's naval aviators, the Bell 407 GXI is the next generation advanced helicopter training system offering exceptional value and proven reliability. See the Bell 407 GXI in action at bell.co slash Navy 407. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special edition is my usual co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. We are not in Studio C today. We are not in Annapolis so, in Studio C. Yeah, we're looking out the window at uh, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. We are in the uh, the office of uh, Vice Admiral Matt Winner the director of the Joint Strike Fighter Program, uh, also known as the F-35 Program. So it is great to be here today, sir. Thanks for hosting us, and welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, thanks, Bill and Ward. It's a pleasure to have you guys here. I look forward to our conversation. Yes, sir. So let's start with your background. Um, you graduated from Notre Dame, got commissioned through Notre Dame, um, and then became a Naval Flight Officer and, and flew the vaunted a6 Intruder, and I will make a uh, tie-in back to Naval Institute Press. The second novel Naval Institute Press ever published was by my good friend Stephen Coons. I don't know if you've ever met Stephen, um, but he wrote Flight of the Intruder. That was the second novel behind Hunt for Red October that uh, the Naval Institute Press ever, ever published. So um, back in our J.O. days, one side of the, the flight line was Tomcats, and then the other side was A6s. Um, and that was, those were good days. That was a good world. Really good, good days. Good world. So you had three A6 tours. Um, and if I get the number right, so you were in, I know your second tour is 85. What was your 42? So VA-42 for the RAG. Okay. And then uh, 85 first deployment, uh, first squadron. Uh, then a, uh, a stint at Matwing 1. So the type commander there for uh, A6s doing uh, uh, instructor in the RAG, as well as doing Who was Matt ops. Wing? It wasn't Fox Fallon, was it? So actually, I had five Commodores uh, oh, the really? time that I was there, and Fox was one of those. Um, and then I got a Super J.O. tour when uh, Rich Jascott, uh, skipper of the Blue Blasters. You know uh, well, great uh, yeah, he, was, he was my yeah. CAG in uh, Air Wing 7. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. It was uh, him and uh, Bud Jewett. And I uh, went back as senior J.O. Uh, we deployed aboard the uh, uh, the Ike. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was great. It's uh my uh, time during uh, Matwing, though, I, I headed out with Mark Kapansky, who was the chief staff officer, and uh, we took three jets uh, over to uh, Sheikh Issa and did a little uh, desert storm action. And uh, uh, the A6, the vulnerable A6, um, uh, and that cadre of uh, tacticians and warfighters and targeteers, um, it was a great community. And uh, really, I learned a lot about leadership, about decision-making, um, in those uh, formidable 10 to 12 years of flying the A6. So then you made the pivot into the AEDO procurement world. How, did, how does that go for the, uh, the listener who may not be aware sure. of, of how to do Well, first, uh, let me say that I do know Stephen Kuntz. Uh, we're actually Facebook friends, which is great. Oh. Um, and uh, yeah, I know it's that time. Yeah. You know, if you're not Facebook friends, I guess you're something else. So, <laughs> um, uh, but so there I was uh, uh, at Monterey. I was at the Naval Postgraduate School uh, studying computer science, hardcore computer science. And it was halfway through that that uh, the department uh, made the decision to decommission the A6 intruder community. Um, and uh, I was a lieutenant commander at the time. 
had uh, uh, verbals to come back uh, to Oceana and be a department head, and uh, that uh, dissipated. And so um, as I sat around uh, in my own self-wallow and saying, this isn't fair, right? But my winterism for that is fair is something you, get, you pay to get on the bus. So um, uh, you know, make sure you're focused on what you can do uh, when things are thrown at you like that. So when I told uh, my detail that I'm just going to get out of the Navy, he said, well, you owe us $55,000 for that naval postgraduate school education. I said, did I say I was getting out? <laughs> what else do we have? And uh, actually, the Aeronautical Engineering Duty Corps and Duty Officer Corps um, was completely unknown to me. And uh, I would say even today, uh, there's not as much um, uh, awareness of other opportunities for our subsurface, surface, and aviation warfighters that um, when, in, uh, when other things in the operational pipeline, either uh, door closes or um, other options aren't known, um, there is opportunity out there. And so um, I uh, was uh, uh, fortunate enough to have a gentleman in my uh, computer science class that was an AD, um, and he hooked me up with the community manager and the detailer. And we walked through that, and I said, sounds like a great opportunity. And I made the shift, so basically as a lieutenant commander, a mid-career shift um, into the AED community. And uh, uh, my first job was right here in Crystal City working for a guy named Captain Jocko Chenevy in PMA 201. That's the program office for all conventional strike weapons uh, for the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, and uh, I had to learn a new lexicon, um, all the acquisition ease. Um, but over this last 23 years of doing that, um, one thing that didn't change from the fleet um, was the leadership, decision-making, commitment, accountability, uh, and the ability to lead folks to truly make a difference. And, um, and, and that, uh, that transition into the Acquisition Corps has been quite successful uh, in being able to touch every sensor, almost every sensor, weapon, and platform. Uh, to today, which um, I'm quite humbled and honored to be able to be considered and now uh, filling the shoes here in the stewardship of the largest acquisition enterprise in the world uh, as the F-35 director. NAVAIR used to be in Crystal City back and it moved down to Pax River in what, the early 90s? When the mid -90s? It had a 96 BRAC, so they, uh, okay. they, the orange boxes came out in 96. Okay. Right. Um, and, and so you've been in several programs. Uh, you worked uh, Tomahawk for a, a little while. You worked uh, in part of the Joint Strike Fighter program. Um, and then you were uh, the, the program manager for um, 201, which is, which one, what's the name of so that the one? So PMA 201 is a conventional strike weapons, then it transitioned to precision strike weapons. Ironically, that was my first as a lieutenant commander working for Jocko. Okay. Um, and then uh, my major command tour, so for acquisition 06, major command tour for AEDs, you're either a program manager, you're a wing commander in the test pipeline, or you're an FRC commander in our logistics uh, fleet support. Um, so, yeah, I was PMA 201, um, and that was from uh, 2006 to 2009 and a half. Um, and, uh, uh, and I was fortunate enough coming out of that to get selected for FLAG. Um, again, another humbling transition um, and got the great opportunity uh, to go be the uh, Naval Air Warfare Center Weapons Division Commander um, out uh, uh, at China Lake, Point Magoo, and San Nick Island. Um, and... Uh, what you find is a lot of people go kicking and screaming to the desert, and then they go kicking and screaming to leave the desert. Um, and truly, it's not unlike here. Um, it's really the people and being able to get the 20-somethings, uh, the 30-somethings 
um, interfacing with the 50-something and 60-somethings in a knowledge transfer. And um, uh, China Lake is truly the incubation uh, petri dish of where things are done that have been, never been done before. Um, and it was a fascinating tour for me. Um, I, I then got the nod to go be the PEO for unmanned aviation and strike weapons coming back to Pax River um, and taking over for the, my boss. So Bill Shannon was the admiral when I was PMA 201, and I took over from him. Um, had a great opportunity there to do things like X-47, first ever strike fighter-sized unmanned system, uh, cats and traps, um, uh, great partnership with industry and academia, as, lo- as well as our, um, our own engineers and testers uh, in, the, uh, uh, in NAV Air. Um, but other things like BAMS and um, Triton, uh, Fire Scout, uh, and then Lorazum, Tomahawk, um, a lot of good work done by um, uh, our weapons teams. And then we also had um, all of the uh, training systems and mission planning systems um, that really were the incubation for things like the artificial intelligence um, and other um, machine-to-machine learning that's now um, starting to make its way through all of our systems. So um, I really thought that that was the end of the uh, opportunities, and uh, but I got tapped on the shoulder then uh, to come up and be the 24th chief of naval research. So I called that the mad scientist of the Navy and the Marine Corps, uh, leading about 4,000 PhD big brainiacs, uh, discovering stuff, things that only God knew yesterday, um, <laughs> and rolling them out in petri dishes and test tubes. Um, really basic applied and advanced research. Um, again, another fascinating insight to the true intellectual capital and, and, and stability and maturity um, and advantages that our United States has um, on a global stage, but specifically in our Department of the Navy. Um, fascinating work there. And then from there, um, the, uh, the opportunity to uh, come here to the F-35 Enterprise um, and I don't think there's anybody truly that's in acquisition in our military that doesn't know of F-35. Um, but when you think of F-35, it's not an airplane. And uh, you, you needed to get through that uh, looking glass uh, understanding uh, to really understand that uh, F-35 is an enterprise. Um, it is a unique framework, a, new, a unique business model. Um, it is not like any other um, acquisition program ever. Um, and should it be? Ever again, I mean, there's a debate about the way we've done F-35 over the last 19 years. Um, but my initial foray into F-35 was in 1997, when ironically I was the executive assistant to the director here. Um, and now that I'm the director, um, I've come full circle. Um, F-35 is a collaborative partnership with um, a directive signed at the sec- Depth Secretary of Defense level of the eight international countries in the United States. It's not the, it's not the PO level um, that guides us into design, develop, and delivery uh, and operations of the F-35 air system. This is a unique program where the F-35 aircraft and the software and sensors that go in it is here, absolutely. But we also have life cycle design, development, and sustainment efforts for the intelligence systems, the planning systems, the maintenance systems, and the training systems. So. Those are normally broken up into other SPOs or other program offices that have other O6 or other um, authorities to budget for, execute, and then some integration function occurs. Um, the idea here was to bring F-35 under a single framework for seamless integration. That's yet to, you know, there's, there's still bumps and seams, but um, a single belly button that can look across that to trade off the investments as well as the technical risk. Um, and then show true ownership costs of what it takes to bring warfighting capability to our warfighter. 
Um, and one of the monikers we get with F-35 is we are the most expensive uh, aircraft um, ever in the Department of Defense. Um, and we, we command in a considerable amount of the budget of not only the United States, but of our eight partners um, and now four FMS teammates. And there's a distinction. The fact that we have all of those systems, not just the airplane and the software, but all those other systems, and we do a complete life cycle to 2077, when you bring that scope of effort together and you do the calculations, we're a $1.7 trillion total life cycle. And there are very few things that are $1.7 trillion unless you calculate out over the years um, and bring the total life cycle together. Um, but put that business side off to the side. Yeah, F-35 um, really turned a corner in 2016 um, under the great um, re reconstruction leadership of uh, Vice Admiral Dave Van Lett, um, who really helped um, re-baseline technically feasible and business acumen to move things forward. Um, we've been able to really get the albatross of the negativism of the F-35 off our necks. Um, the aircraft and the air system um, is operating in combat today. Um, our Israeli friends uh, and the United States Marine Corps have taken it into combat um, and utilized it. So let, let's let's go, before we hit current events, let, let's do a brief history of the you know, the initial RFP. What was the idea, um, the down-select, and, and then the high points of developmental tests. You know, mm, want to okay, talk sure. an initial carrier suit. Let's talk helmet issues um, and, and that sort of thing. So go sure. go way back. So we're talking uh, late 80s, early 90s. There's yeah. this idea for a, a, sure. a, an airplane sure. to replace existing. And it's no different than some of the things that are being kicked around today. So um, if you think about um, uh, that, that age, right? In fact, I was still an A6 guy. Uh, when the A-12 was being developed, right? And I was actually on the A-12 ASAP, Air Crew System Advisory Panel, um, and have uh, 90 hours in an A-12 simulator, um, as well as uh, a number of people that might be listening to this. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it, if that's not a motivator, I don't know what, what else would be for an attack uh, uh, guy. Maybe not a fighter guy, but an attack guy would be. So, um, no, uh, that was going to be a cool airplane, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was going to be great. It was a flying Dorito. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, now F 35, let's talk about, uh, um, a collection of technologies. We had some brilliant visionaries, uh, in the, uh, Air Force and the Navy as they started to look at the emerging technologies, um, coming out of our laboratories and out of our industry partners, uh, advanced development, uh, labs. In the 1990s. Uh, actually coming out of the 80s. So coming out of the, the, the shutdown or the cancellation, let's call it the cancellation of the A-12. Another, a couple of other starts and, and stops Cheney, there. Cheney uh, action. 1989. Yeah, that's correct. When he was SecDef. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I, and I'm, I'd rather, and I won't go into any of those kind of you know, the yeah. causal factors. But let's talk about, um, there's a whole uh, ship set of on-the-shelf uh, technologies that were uh, part of those efforts, um, as well as new and emerging technologies that started to knit together. And so... Um, uh, the Air Force and Navy leadership came together and, and Marine Corps leadership said, hey, let's grab these technologies together and see um, what kind of um, insertion efforts we can do with currently fielded capabilities. So not just aviation, but um, other capability platforms, platform capabilities. And so they uh, termed the, uh, the phase called Joint Attack Strike Technologies. So you may have heard of JAST. 
Um, so that's where JAS came from. And it was roughly 300 to 310 technologies uh, spanning everything from structures and materials uh, to avionics and electronics, uh, apertures, things of that nature. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, those uh, gentlemen and ladies came together uh, and formed a, a office, a JAST office. It wasn't a program office, but so it's still a technology um, uh, uh, office in this area. And um, uh, what they started to look at is how can we uh, knit these together to a, a, a formidable capability um, and specifically for the aviation domain. Um, and it, I wasn't there for any of this. This is all secondhand, thirdhand reading. Um, but there was a, uh, a groundswell of um, other things that had failed and other things that were not being supported in other aviation domain discussions across the services. And so there was a, a confluence of this is the right time to bring together these, these technologies um, and bring together a truly joint requirement um, for a future um, air dominant um, air superiority platform. And, um, uh, and then with that, the business case started to, to started to be generated. So some of the, um, some of the, those tenets of this program were um, being able to show that if the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps pursued their own individual um, strike fighter type of development program uh, to augment or replace the Hornet, augment or replace the, the Harrier, augment or replace the F-16, um, the, the business case showed those in, investments uh, compared to if we bring together um, the three services and, and an international partner or two, because that time it was just the Brits, um, and we brought together and strove for a joint common framework um, and looked to have somewhere between 60 to 80% commonality of airframe um, and then uh, integrated the, you know, pay to be different, the uniquenesses of what carrier aviation or uh, expeditionary warfare with uh, vertical land uh, or uh, high-end fight, um, uh, high maneuvering of the Air Force, and started seeing how we could bring that together in a business case. Uh, there was considerable cost avoidance calculations um, from a business case. Um, the major assumption there was the commonality between 60 and 80 percent. Um, Has that held? Um, so we are in the uh, 60% uh, from a hardware perspective, um, but it gets mucky because we started delivering airplanes um, before we finalized the design, before testing was completed. So we were finding some basic structural changes that need to be changed. Hmm. But on average, you could go between lowest of 40% to 60% commonality of structure. 100% commonality of avionics, software, um, PFE, pilot um, uh, equipment, uh, above the neck, below the neck, helmet, and other things. Um, so a lot of synergy there uh, from economies of scale and configuration management efficiencies. Um, but going back to the original business case and then providing that, um, that proposal request out to um, the two competitors, um, to do what's called a concept demonstration phase in parallel with putting together a formal um, production uh, proposal. We called it the, uh, the PWSC, the Preferred Weapon Systems Concept, and the concept demonstration phase ran in parallel. 
And um, I happened to be in the program office as the integrated flight and propulsion control. So we called it IFPC, IPT deputy, and then fleeted up to be the lead. Uh, and that was 97 to 2001. 2001 was when the down select occurred. But in those previous four years, there were some incredible accomplishments by our industry partners and government team together with the, you may recall, the X-32 for the Boeing variant and X-35 for the, the Lockheed Martin variant. Um, and the requirement was um, to uh, uh, produce two airframes. Um, and there were there were uh, specific design requirements for the F thirty or at that time the the XA XB and XC f- configuration. So conventional takeoff and land for the A, uh, the short takeoff and vertical land for the B, and the carrier environment for the C. Um, so each competitor had to bring two airframes and then be able to convert one of those airframes to the third variant to show that commonality to demonstrate the commonality. Um, as well as the people called it a fly-off. There was no fly-off. There was a standard set, and you had to meet the standard. It's sort of like fit reps. Even though we do competitive grades, we have standards to uh, do that too, and we, we did the standards. And um, um, I will stay away from any um, post-facto assessment of good, bads, or others. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, the, the Department of Defense selected the, uh, the X-35 um, and the Lockheed Martin team to move forward. Um, I will share a, uh, um, a little factoid. Um, uh, uh, when uh, asked uh, at, the, uh, at the announcement, so what's the name of this new fighter going to be, um, the actual number and sequence was somewhere in the F-24, F-25 time frame. Um, but one of our staunch leaders on the uh, stage um, answered quickly and appropriately, it's going to be F-35. And so um, F-35 was born that day on that stage. Um, uh, so uh, we've since 2001 to 2019, uh, just last year, we delivered the full Block 3F capability. Um, to get to that point, though, the design um, and some of the technical risk challenges um, that uh, this uh, enterprise um, uh, actually experienced um, were tough to overcome. So let's let's drill down a little bit. So yeah. uh, at in 01. Lockheed Martin gets gets the uh, the award. What did we think IOC was going to be at that time, and and what was the program of record in terms of number of A's, B's, and C's? What was what did we think the buy was going to be at that time? So at that point, let me start with um, we had uh, buy-in from the United Kingdom, Denmark, Netherlands, and Norway, um, and those were our original. We called them the UK and DNN. Um, and they were there as part of the um, um, uh, part of the concept demonstration. Be so before down select um, the international directorate, uh, led by a guy named uh, great guy John Schreiber. Um, uh, he was working uh, with our um, international domains, uh, the predecessor to DSCA now and uh, SAFIA and Navy IPO. Um, and, uh, and looking to see if there was uh, interest on the international stage for participation um, in the, uh, and not just from an FMS case. So, uh, you know, FMS is basically um, you come in and you procure an end item and support for that end item and, um, uh, and, and other, you know, activities for that end item. Uh, in this case, um, uh, the leadership decided that uh, this shouldn't be an FMS and we really don't want it just to be a normal collaboration. We want a true buy-in by our partners um, so that if their resources 
go away, we have a broken program. Similar to what we have when you have a joint program with the multiple U.S. services, the idea of the joint program is, is that everybody's in. Um, the unfortunate thing about most joint programs, though, are everybody agrees on the requirements at the beginning, um, and then because of other service priorities that are correct, I mean, they're very important, um, there's a divergence that occurs. Uh, one of the mechanisms uh, in the governance structure that was established in 2001 was that the uh, program director uh, would be of one service and be a two-star, either general or admiral, um, and the deputy would be of the alternate service um, so that you have uh, an FO and a GO in the front office from both services that can be talking back to their own service connectedness. Um, up and out of the uh, PEO, um, the milestone decision authority, so the acquisition authority for decisions of acquisition strategy was at the OSD level. So in the old vernacular, it was acquisition uh, OSD, A, and T, and then it became A, T, and L. Um, so right from the get-go, the structure was, this platform was under the uh, the PEO umbrella. It was never a PMA. That's correct. Okay. Absolutely. Um, and um, But at the same time, there was an appreciation for the day-to-day -day activities, um, and you don't want to overstep the next layer of acquisition um, leadership, which is our service acquisition executives. So today that's uh, Secretary Gertz for the Department of Navy and, and uh, Secretary Roper for the um, United States Air Force. Um, and so the PEO on day-to-day -day actions would be working with its alternate SAE. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm a, an admiral, although I'm a joint flag officer in this role. Um, I talk with Secretary Roper every day or, you know, on a regular basis for my day-to-day -day activities. And then I go to Miss Lord for milestone decision and activities. Um, that alternate service, um, uh, bo both services represented in the front office, um, as well as the joint um, uh, environment, uh, really gave a consistent buy-in and accountability and responsibility uh, uh, by all services versus most joint programs where you have a lead service and a following service, and that lead service sort of has um, most of the control, and the following service may not feel as bought in and may take some resources and not be as pr prioritized. Um, I think that model is a good model. Um, however, um, that even has challenges. Um, and uh, so as we moved through 2001 and on, um, you know, the, the, the aircraft and the, and the timelines were set for about a seven-year development to first initial production, so 2007, um, start delivering an aircraft, get the full rate in the uh, 2012 timeframe, 2010 timeframe, um, and then you're off and running. Um, I do not know the original program of record quantities um, in 2001. Um, that, that number uh, is never in my brain. Um, today, we're at 2,456 for the United States. That's 1,763 for the United States Air Force F-35As, uh, uh, 353 F-35Bs for the United States Marine Corps, um, and then 340 total F-35Cs, uh, 67 for the Marine Corps to meet their big deck carrier aviation wing demand signal requirement, uh, and the balance, um, 237. Um, uh, or the, um, uh, for the United States Navy. How many have been delivered so far, sir? Uh, we've delivered uh, 386 F-35 air systems. Now, in that number, um, of the 2,456 for the U.S., there's another 780 
for my international and FMS partners as part of that program of record. So in the 385 that have been delivered, um, uh, there's uh, about uh, 20% of those are international. Um, so the A, you, that you, again, that you said 1,770-something. What was that number? 1,763 for the United States Air Okay, Force. so th- are those one-for-one replacements for F-15Cs? What, 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 are, what is it that that airplane is sure. replacing? Uh, the answer to that is no. They're not one-to-one replacements. So let me tell you, the, um, the program of record quantity, not only for our U.S. partners, for, but our international partners, are based upon their warfighting analysis, op-plan demand signals um, across their entire aviation enterprise. Um, and so as they continuously reassess the demand signals from the COCOMs, uh, emerging capabilities and threats, um, and the uh, current uh, um, uh, capabilities and readiness of their entire aviation fleet, um, that's a continuous reassessment that's done. Um, the 1,763 number comes up out of the Air Force's analysis and then cooperated by the CAPE, uh, that's the Cost Analysis uh, Program uh, Evaluation uh, Group at the, uh, at the Office of Secretary of Defense, um, that um, uh, determines based upon capacity and capability for the particular areas of responsibility around the world uh, to fight the fight and the mission threads that the F-35 has been designed and delivered to service. Uh, and those are four primary mission threads, which are air superiority, so think offensive and defensive counter-air. Um, think strategic strike, so being able to go in the high end, high threat, in and out, and do true warheads on foreheads and get out safely. Um, and then you've got uh, close air support, um, and then you've got suppression and defeat of enemy air defenses. We call that seed and deed. Um, we are um, adding, as we go forward here with Block 4, um, we won't get to that yet because I still know you want to talk about other things, but um, we're adding um, surface strike. So uh, when I talk about surface warfare strike, so maritime engagement um, capability. So those are the mission threads that the F-35 air system um, has been designed and developed to deliver uh, more fighting capability. So r- roughly for the unlearned audience, the A is replacing, depending on mission set, the F-15, both C and E, the F-16s, and the A-10. So let's not get that as a soundbite. F-35. <laughs> it's too right? late. It's out there. <laughs> I know. See? <laughs> Believe me. I live in eight-second soundbites. <laughs> Did the Admiral really say yeah. that? In Did fact, he nod if, his head when, right. when Ward said that? So I, you know, if I said everything that everybody said, I said I'd never say anything <laughs> myself. Right. So um, uh, it's important to understand that all three of our U.S. services have stated on the record um, that a blend of fourth-gen and fifth-gen um, uh, uh, aviation uh, capability uh, is prudent. Um, and some are transitioning um, uh, at different phases than others. But um, right now, the United States Air Force uh, will be maintaining their F-16s and F-15s um, uh, along with their F-22s and, and, and uh, F-35s um, as a blended fourth-gen, fifth-gen Air Force. Uh, the United States Navy is keeping their F- F-18s um, and bringing on F-35 Charlies. And right now there's, um, they're looking at what's called a 2 plus 2, so two Hornets and two um, uh, Lightning II squadrons on the, on the deck. Um, and then our uh, United States Marine Corps um, is keeping the Harry around, I think the last thing I just heard was 2028 time frame now, um, uh, as the F-35B comes into service um, at scale for them. Um, and so they'll keep that blend um, uh, along with some F-18s. Um, so 
Uh, and what we've seen, um, and this is the part of the analysis that was PowerPoint deep about five years ago, and now we have empirical data uh, coming out of uh, exercises like Red Flag, um, actual um, engagements with our uh, with those that have had this in combat and fought together, fourth gen, fifth gen. Um, the F-35 air system with its advanced uh, sensor fusion and advanced sensors, so think software and actual hardware sensors like cameras, um, uh, electromagnetic uh, sensors, electro uh, uh, EW receivers, um, other things of that nature, along with uh, its advanced stealth capability, which is not just material and shaping on the outside of the aircraft, but the ability for that aircraft to know where it is and what's around it and maneuvers itself to uh, minimize its uh, exposure to threats. And you couple all that with the interoperability interface of the F-35 to be able to share all that data, not just keep it for the pilot that's inside that aircraft, but share it across data link connections to other F-35s, as well to be able to con communicate with, you know, with surface ships and satellites and everything in between. So when we, between where we're talking about the uh, RFP and the capability that we're now starting to realize. In fact, US 9 News had a cool story this morning that Megan Eckstein wrote about the Essex ARG and, and what those guys are talking about in terms of the air superiority part, not traditionally, uh, 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 you know, a uh, brown water mission, right? right. Uh, schlepping Marines to the beach is kind of what they do. And suddenly they're like, hey, we can act as a mini carrier strike group out here, you yeah. know, with this capability. So, but let's talk briefly about some of the the highlights lowlights of dt right so i remember hearing millions you know millions lines of code um so what were the challenges you had to overcome uh, along the way with with this data capability yeah two um two decisions that were well th thought through at the time and made um um is where i come to when people ask hey uh, what are the what are the major lessons learned from your perspective? Um, when we awarded the contract in 2001, we, the Department of Defense, um, we uh, we agreed to a what was at that time a new way of doing acquisition, a new acquisition strategy called Total System Performance Responsibility. If you can't if you can't pronounce an acronym, you shouldn't have one. So it's TISPR, right? Wow. T S P R. That's pushing the envelope. So what is that? It's push the requirement uh, to our industry partner, provide them the resources, um, and then um, continue to monitor and engage, but um, streamline all the bureaucratic administrative effort so you can focus on doing the design and deliver capability more expeditiously. That's the, the theory behind that. Um, and in that, data products that are generated. So think um, as we design things so so complex as an F-35 or the maintenance system called uh, the Autonomic Logistics Information System, we call it affectionately ALICE, um, and those other things, you, you have design work and you have data and understanding, you have test results, um, you understand where the vulnerabilities and the opportunities are and you fix them. All of that work, right, gets documented. Um, and the, the strategy was to put it into a, a virtual environment um, that could be accessed by the government whenever we wanted to versus the traditional way we do programs. We have what's called a CDRL, a contract deliverable request list, um, requirement list. 
Um, and you have to deliver those things, artifacts, reports, pieces of paper. And then somebody has to accept them and agree that they're good enough. And then you go back and say they're not. And you go back and forth. And that takes time and takes money. So um, what that's very good in, in execution for the early part of the, uh, the program. But as things started to happen with the technical maturity, uh, some of the design weight issues we had with the F-35B, um, other uh, design um, uh, technical issues uh, that were unknown at the time but became what we call once a, a risk is known, it's an issue, um, uh, started to uh, uh, have to cave out, get rid of requirement, reduce requirements to stay within budget. Um, the F-35 was on the precipice of being canceled um, in, uh, in the 2000. Um, 8 to 2010 timeframe um, because as we came through the 2004 to 5 timeframe and realized we're not going to be able to get to um, uh, to full verified and validated so fully tested F-35 system in time for pr the production time. Because of the wanted. technical challenges. Mm -hmm. right? These things were only discovered in developmental tests, yeah. right? That's why you have in developmental tests. Developmental tests, but also developmental tests is not just in the airplane with our test pilots. A uh, developmental test is in the labs. Um, the complexity of the electronics and the software, the 16 million or so lines of code that the F-35 flies with, um, and the complexity and the uh, the uncertainty of that, that integration effort um, drove a lot of time, um, and it, it, it identified a number of unknown knowns and, and known unknowns. Um, and you need that test. You need verification and validation. Um, if it's a completely 100% software product, um, you can do capability-based testing that does um, hundreds of millions of uh, test uh, scenarios quickly, um, and you can get uh, verified code. Um, we didn't really have that kind of capability back in the early 2000s. It was known, but it, it wasn't implementable. We have that today. Um, uh, but the integration of that software with hardware and then make it safe, right? So you've got to have airworthiness. Airworthiness verification validation is absolutely essential. Um, and the FAA has delegated that down to the military services. And for the United States Navy, uh, it's um, uh, the Naval Air Systems Command. And for the United States Air Force, uh, through uh, the Life Cycle Management uh, Command, uh, it goes to a, a, an organization called Seek Eagle. Uh, those men and women are charged with responsibility to ensure the airworthiness of software, hardware, um, of anything that flies for the Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps. Um, and so um, that verification validation, that testing portion of anything, in this case the F-35, um, is usually about 30 to 35 percent of the time and cost of delivering any system. Um, and so when you look at the F-35 and the timeline it took to go do that, um, we were running into other challenges um, technically that we had to fix. So you had to stop the test, you had to go fix it, and you had to go back and repeat tests, rework, and so forth. Um, meanwhile, um, uh, the department had made the decision that we should still move forward with initial production to start to uh, uh, understand the producibility issues and understand the best way to uh, bring together a supply chain um, across. By this time now, we had our eight international partners um, all with um, uh, their demand signals for their quantity of aircraft. 
um, and all of their industrial partners in their in their countries as part of the supply chain. So there was plenty of um, goodness to continue to move forward with that. But that's the second decision because we started producing aircraft and delivering aircraft um, before the complete design was verified and validated. Um, and so there were um, structural issues that needed to be corrected. Um, there were um, there were software uh, issues, mission system issues. Um, there were um, elements from an aerodynamic design that needed to be fixed because we were in a lesser envelope because we're you know in, in test we start out in a in a known area of the uh, the flight envelope and then we do points we do flight test points and we expand that envelope um, to out to the edges of that envelope and we started that uh, in our first flights there um, in the late 2000s but we didn't finish the block 3f final flight test uh, until 2018. So over that period of time, you can imagine for eight years, uh, you're going to find other things. And so there was a, uh, a concurrency of verification, validation, and fix while producing aircraft. Um, and so uh, that drove a complexity, a complexity of, um, of investment um, and our warfighters need to be able to fight the fight with the assets we were giving them but also understand the limitations um, that they were operating under. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say that in last year when we delivered the Block 3F, um, so that's the terminology of the capability um, for the development program, um, we provided a mature, stable, um, with deficiencies, um, uh, no house that you buy when you do a, uh, have the house inspector come um, is ever pristine, right? Um, it's the question is: Does it have a hole in the roof, or is the molding slightly skewed behind the toilet, right? So you'll accept that latter, you wouldn't accept the former. Um, and so discrepancies are in every system and uh, everywhere we look, um, and it's important that we balance that risk and we correct those that are absolutely essential for our warfighter, and we hold ourselves accountable and industry accountable to deliver the capability they were supposed to deliver. So um, we have now. Uh, delivered the 385 aircraft. Roughly 120 of those are those earlier aircraft. We call them lots, L-O-T. Um, so from lot one to lot five um, were um, a number of aircraft that had um, those older designs and the less reliable parts. Um, and we are in the process at the direction of our uh, uh, U.S. services uh, to modernize them. So bring them up to the hardware configuration um, of the Block 3F, um, and we're in the process of doing that. We call it uh, the Block 3F T Tech Refresh 2 modification, um, and that'll be completed. Um, the last jets will be completed middle of next year, um, so all of those older jets will be more reliable, um, and the jets that are coming off the line today, we're on Lot 11, we're delivering Lot 11 right now, um, have much higher reliable um, and availability rates. So the Air Force just last week deployed uh, six or so uh, F-35s to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, are any of those or all those in that lot one through five group? So um, operational movements and configuration of operational capabilities at the discretion of the commander. Um, and so uh, it is out in the public that it's the 388th fighter wing uh, that are uh, stationed at Hill Air Force Base. Um, and Hill Air Force Base gets our um, uh, uh, latest lot aircraft. Um, so um, uh, uh, the Air Force deployment um, is not the first time they've deployed. 
um, and they've deployed what um, other support packages to other operational regions. Um, but this is the first um, uh, major um, deployment by the United States Air Force with an F-35 squadrons um, to the Middle East, and it is a big deal. How, how about the helmet? How's that working? Because, you know, there was yeah. the initial, well, talk about the promise of the helmet. Does the F-35 have a HUD or is the helmet the HUD? Yeah, helmet's the HUD. We okay. can say it that way. So, um, you actually look like uh, Mr. Fly. Um, and uh, the, the helmet itself um, uh, provides um, your attitude reference, um, your line of sight directive, um, your targeting cues. Uh, it gives you everything you need. Um, uh, it's a, um, an integral part. We buy the helmet with the aircraft. Um, so it's not uh, we buy a bunch of helmets somewhere else. Um, you fit that helmet to that individual. You know, I remember back in the A6 days when, they, when this new idea called a form-fit helmet came out, right? <laughs> yeah, and they had to pour this thing all over your, your noggin, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've come a long way. Um, and this is a state-of-the-art, uh, true marvel, we call it from the neck up, um, and the ability to truly uh, reduce the task load, so reduce the stress and strain of our pilots to be able to do the mission, um, which is a pretty complex mission, um, with that helmet um, capability. Uh, predominantly, and this comes back to my time when I was the IFPC, that Integrated Flight and Propulsion Control Chief Engineer, um, to ensure that the, the, the ability, the, the easiness of flying the aircraft was seamless. Um, and uh, today, you guys, my daughter, um, anybody can get into the uh, simulator and you can get an OK-3. Well, we saw that at West, right? Uh, yeah, Megan, I, our, our right. teammate. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah, flew I, the simulator, yeah. and she she I, was. I, uh, I flew it last year, twenty eighteen. Yeah. It was uh, yeah, yeah. pretty amazing, right? And so the idea there was to make the, um, um, it's a very forgiving, uh, control law base, um, and uh, and even and in the most complex uh, landing environment. So, uh, we call it mode four. The most complex um, landing environment is when you take an F thirty five B and you're an up-and-away flight, and you approach the ship, um, and they come, their normal con ops is to come up the port side um, and then slow to hover speed and go into mode four, which basically 17 consecutive miracles uh, occur, um, <laughs> wow. and the, uh, um, the lift fan hatch opens. Um, the, the nozzle, so think the tailpipe of the aircraft, um, has a swivel um, mechanism that allows it to swivel down and point directly uh, vertically down, um, the air uh, the lift fan is pointed straight down, and then we port uh, uh, propulsion uh, uh, flow to two roll posts. So think vents um, on each wingtip or wing wing area, and now you've got lateral control with those roll posts, and you've got longitudinal and and vertical control, and um, and and all of that can be done automatic. Um, and we have automated controls for make that happen. So in your helmet, you're seeing all the symbology you need to get that approach right yeah. and land exactly on Absolutely. spot Absolutely. And, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So, you know, as the, the raster scan issue is a little, it was lagging the movement of the, the head. Is that obviously you wouldn't be flying if that was still a problem? Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of learning from um, uh, a symbology, but really from a computing power perspective to stay up with, uh, the Dund there, we were able to feed more information to the helmet than the helmet could take, um, and and that goes back to broader a broader um, 
issue and opportunity that F-35 brings to the table. Uh, we generate an incredible amount of information. Um, uh, we, can, we, we can suck up everything in the, in the battle space. Um, but I always say just because you can do something doesn't mean you need to. Um, and when you do, you need to know how you take info, data to info, to actionable information. And um, for the helmet, um, one of the most um, uh, uh, integrated and complicated uh, presentation activities, being able to fuse what we call our distributed aperture system. We call it the DAS. Um, uh, these are six cameras that are on the aircraft and uh, allows the uh, pilot to see 360 degrees no matter where he or she looks um, as if you're not even in an aircraft. Like Space Ghost. Yeah, it is. Right? It's exactly you can look like through that. the airplane. That's correct. And, uh, nice. and target through the airplane. And um, it, it, it gives you um, uh, the aircraft fusing capability um, doesn't take a single input. It really is like you as a human being. Right now, you're listening to me and you're looking at me, but you're also sensing the temperature in the room, the lights, maybe some of the distractions outside the window. Um, but you're focused on the mission at hand, but your rest of your sensors are bringing it all in so that you can immediately do something if you needed to. Uh, the F-35 does the same thing, brings everything in, and that refresh rates um, presents to the pilot what he or she needs to know um, based upon artificial intelligence algorithms as well as preset mission planning um, uh, priorities uh, to say, I don't need to worry about anything here, I don't need to worry anything about there, um, but I do need to worry about this. Um, and in the old days, the, the bombardier navigator was the fusion algorithm. Um, it, we truly, uh, this, the fusion sensor, and it is the, the game-changing capability um, that uh, truly sets the F-35 apart. So that we're, we're running short on time, and I know you have a hard stop. you got to go over to the Pentagon. And uh, as you were talking about earlier, you report out every day to uh, uh, the Air Force uh, chief. So um, what are you hearing anecdotally from from the B drivers, you know, in the ARG and uh, the the expeditionary squadrons, the 488th and, and uh, so forth, in terms of uh, what is unfolding, right? What are the capabilities? I mean, obviously, if we were at the O Club, if you had a uh, Lightning II driver, there's no way he would say, I would rather be in a Super Hornet, right? Just like yeah. um, a, a F-35B guy is never going to say, you know, I really miss the Harrier, right? That's just not yeah. happening. That's but if I'm a strike group commander or whatever, what is what is unfolding in yeah. terms of this capability? So um, uh, it's a great question. Um, I have yet to meet an F-35 pilot that's not, extremely satisfied with the capability of the aircraft um, and the ability to do the mission and uh, the learning and exploration of other ways to operate and utilize the F-35. Um, uh, but we're not without our challenges and the, and, and the issues are truly from a um, making sure that um, we have spare parts, the maintenance side of this, um, uh, and making sure that the aircraft is maintainable, uh, making sure that we can uh, keep the jets up and flying. You know, um, our combat-coded uh, uh, squadrons are between, you know, 65 and 75 percent mission capability rate. And, you know, people say, well, why aren't you 100? Well, when they're flying, they're 100. Um, and then there's uh, pre-planned maintenance. There's other activities. But our biggest challenge right now is being able to have the spare parts in the bin so my maintainer can turn around and grab them when he or she needs it uh, and getting things fixed. Um, either in our organic depots um, uh, or with our industry partners. So how many airplanes in a C squadron? What's PAA for uh, your average? 
Yeah, so, so right now the, um, uh, the United States Navy declared IOC with 10 aircraft as an initial operational capability. Okay. Um, their PAA, um, and I'm going to get misquoted, um, but I'm almost certain uh, we're talking uh, 14 to 16, um, and then you have two squadrons. Um, so you have the um, 44 um, uh, eventually, so it'll be 22 uh, F-35s. Okay. And, and a B squadron, how many, how many are right like now, VMA, 10, whatever? 10. It's 10? Okay. Yeah. But, um, you know, so I will tell you that um, what the F-35Bs bring to the table maritime-wise um, is a presence uh, and an engagement um, that the ARG has never had before. Um, and so when you talk about, let's take the flag or the GO that's got to put the battle plan together and be responsive going through the South China Sea or uh, the Straits of Malacca or over in the bathtub there in the Middle East. Um, the F-35 um, can be your own internal organic E-2 um, strike fighter. Um, your, uh, your, your ability to see the, the cop, generate the cop, pass the cop, um, and then uh, engage um, if need be, um, the, um, the range and, uh, uh, legs of the F-35 A, B, and C, um, are all tactically significant, um, and the ability to refuel, which all three have, um, allows it to continue to be those, um, um, uh, the F-35 B squadron, the VMFA-211, um, during their combat deployment, were flying very extended operations, um, and so again, our biggest challenge there was making sure that um, um, we were able to provide the spares, uh, spare parts, if and when they were breaking. Um, uh, but their their combat um, mission capable rates uh, were in the 70s and above. And so um, the problem I have and the concern you look ahead is we're at 385 aircraft. In four years, we're going to be at 1,200. We're going to triple, almost quadruple. We're currently at 16 bases land and two maritime platforms right now. In that same time period, we're going to be at 39, right? So um, seven to eight ships um, in the balance uh, uh, air bases. And that's um, the, uh, the Brits, uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, the Italians, Cavour, as well as our big deck carriers and our um, L-class ships, uh, uh, and then our um, land bases, being able to truly lead through that, I call it delta growth, um, in production and delivery and operational support and um, maintenance um, globally is going to be quite a challenge. And uh, But at the end of the day, um, Warfighter likes the F-35. It's fighting the fight. Um, and we have in, uh, implemented a modernization strategy that will allow that platform to be relevant well into the 2050s to 2070. Do we have any more information on why that Japanese uh, F-35 crashed or this, the, uh, where the pilot – has he been recovered? I don't, I don't uh, the, the pilot's still not been recovered, um, and uh, I won't talk about ongoing investigations. Okay. Um, um, how about – and this may be above your pay grade, so you can certainly punt on this question, but your feelings about Turkey uh, and getting the, the, the JSF and also procuring the S-400. Is there any concerns at your level as the program director? So those are um, issues uh, at the very highest uh, levels of our government, um, and uh, it is a concern. It's a concern um, that uh, our United States is being giving our, our Turkish teammates as much latitude uh, as possible um, to ensure that the equities of a NATO partnership and a U.S.-Turkey uh, bilateral um, uh, partnership is maintained. 
um, uh, the actions that are currently being pursued by Turkey is putting both of those at risk. Um, the fact that the F-35 is um, uh, part of that, um, my team and us, we continue to um, help uh, provide information to our senior leaders to, uh, to make sure they make good, uh, better informed decisions. Um, and the F-35 is at risk for Turkey. Um, and that's their, uh, and they know that. Sir, uh, last question. I'm just curious, within your team here in uh, Crystal City, do you have uh, foreign partner officers who are part of the, the organization or are they all you know, back in their home countries? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, 20% of my workforce here are international. So we call them oh. country partner personnel, CPPs, um, and they're led by what's called a national deputy. So each of the eight countries have a national deputy and assistant national deputy. Um, and they have then um, in their country um, bins, there's engineers, testers, logisticians, uh, and finance folks um, that the country has committed to being part of my integrated product teams. Um, and they are knee deep in the design, development, production, and delivery. Um, you can't, you can tell them apart by their uniform. But they're side-by-side, side, your U.S. Navy and Air Force uh, engineers and loggies and testers. How much longer do you have in this job? Um, so we're all fired. We just don't know when it's going to happen, right? So, and always have, <laughs> no, that's my state. Right? Yeah. Right? So always have music in your head so you have music at your change of command. Um, uh, but uh, I've been uh, blessed with, and, with the honor of being able to lead this great uh, uh, enterprise here for two and a half years. Um, it looks like uh, coming towards the end of this summer, uh, it'll be time to uh, transition to a new uh, opportunity, um, but uh, there's still some um, uh, uh, activities that have to occur to make that a formal statement. So uh, I'll hold off on saying anything formal until that uh, that's been told. So. Okay. Well, Admiral Matt Winter, uh, it's been a long time since we were aboard Ike and, and CAG-7. Yeah. Um, we're very proud of what you've been able to do over the course of your career. Um, thanks for spending some time uh, in your busy day here uh, with us at the Proceedings Podcast. And don't forget, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the Bell 407 GXI helicopter bringing advanced training technology and best value in life cycle sustainment to the next generation of naval aviators. See the Bell 407 GXI in action at bell.co slash Navy 407.